Okay, <clears throat> so far we've done uh, two weeks. Uh, week number one, we looked at the definition of the authority of Scripture. Actually, the first two weeks we looked at the definition of the authority of Scripture. Uh, specifically, we looked in week one at the fact that the Bible does claim to be God's Word. Uh, we looked at the fact that both Jesus and the apostles, the writers of the New Testament, um, looked at the Old Testament as God's Word, believed it was authoritative. Uh, also, that they, they saw their own writings as authoritative and the Word of God. And then last week, uh, we looked at God's character. So, first week, we looked at the fact that this claims to be the Word of God. Last week, we looked at God's character, specifically the fact that God cannot lie, um, that He is truthful in all that He does. He does not mislead. He does not... Um, he's, he, he's, it, he is, it is impossible for him to lie. And uh, we looked at Numbers, for example, 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Uh, we also looked at Psalm 12, 6. The, the words of the Lord are pure. And so we put that together. So we have God's word, and then we looked at the character of God's word, and we... Uh, saw that it was truthful, that God is truthful in all that he communicates. So we see that, uh, going back to the definition of authority, the authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. So we're going to spend sort of one more week technically under a, the authority of Scripture. We're going to look at the inerrancy of Scripture. Um, this, again, all of these go together, and, a, and a, one of the reasons we're spending so much time on the authority is that it's so important. If you get the authority of Scripture wrong, uh, if, you get the, um, if we get this point wrong, then the rest of it is going to fall apart, which we're going to see later. So inerrancy, let me give you a, a definition of inerrancy. Again, I'm, a lot of this is coming right out of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Uh, and why do I point that out every week? Uh, you'll see in just a minute. Uh, the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Again, we're getting to the, we're kind of explaining what does it mean that this is truthful. Um, and so we look at the definition. Um, it's important to point out first before we really get into the definition uh, that when we come to the Word of God, and we kind of looked at this last week, we need to come with humility. Um, too often people come to the Word of God um, as critics, um, as judge. And we looked at the fact that we kind of saw throughout history, um, remember there was a shift where this was the authority, and then it's at, at one point after the Enlightenment, human reason became the authority over Scripture. And so now man is essentially the judge. Uh, after the Enlightenment, man becomes the judge of Scripture. Uh, and it's important to have some humility as we come to the Scripture. There are some things that are really hard to explain. Um, but what, what we see, uh, and we'll look at this a little bit, is that a lot of the things that are hard to explain actually become clear over time. Um, we have new evidence that demonstrates the validity of Scripture. So, but let's, we're going to look specifically at what does it mean and what does it not mean that the Bible is truthful and all that it, all that affirms. 
Uh, Matthew Barrett points out uh, in his book, Sola Scriptura, that many of the so-called contradictions of the Bible that scholars have found problematic a century ago have now been resolved with study and time. Again, there, a lot of people will come as critics and find problems with the Word of God, um, but if we actually look at it, uh, and sometimes it takes time and, and evidence that, that comes, becomes available later, and those problems disappear. What does inerrancy mean? First of all, we note from the definition that inerrancy applies to the original manuscripts. Uh, so, for example, when Paul says that all Scripture is inspired by God, Paul is referring to the writings of Scripture, not necessarily to the authors themselves. The authors themselves aren't the focus of inerrancy. It is the writings. It is the Bible that is the focus. And it's the original manuscripts um, that are inerrant. Now, that's not to suggest that the translations that we have have errors in them. Uh, these are incredibly accurate, but anytime you have translation, we're, we're, but basically the definition does not apply to translations of the Bible. It applies to the original manuscripts themselves. Um, again, these are incredibly accurate. When you read this, you can read this with confidence. But, for example, that's why you'll, you'll have Dan or someone else when they're preaching refer to what the Greek word is uh, because they're getting back to the original. Uh, and sometimes there is a slight shade of difference in meaning in how the English translations are translating that word. And so that's a lot of times you'll hear preachers use the Greek or the Hebrew uh, if they're really smart, and, and, and that's what they, they're just getting back to the original. Um, <clears throat> I remember one time I was writing a paper for a, a, a class, and um, I, I don't know Hebrew, uh, true confession, uh, and I don't know Greek. Um, so I wrote this paper on the Old Testament, and I made a really dogmatic statement in my paper uh, about the meaning of this verse, and and my professor uh, gently, maybe not so gently, uh, corrected me and said, you know, uh, you should have a little more humility in so many words. He didn't say it that way, but basically that's what he meant. You should have a little more humility. Hebrew is really hard. <laughs> it's not so simple. Uh, so, uh, again, it applies to the original languages. Uh, inerrancy number two, inerrancy means that Scripture is true in everything that it affirms. Scripture doesn't give us all of the information about every subject. Um, but in what it does say, it is truthful. It is true. Um, some people will say, well, the Bible is not a science textbook. Right. Uh, it's not a science textbook. But wherever the Bible talks about things of science, it's true. It's trustworthy. Uh, so, for example, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we need to know about the stars, but it does tell us that God created them, um, and it's true. What it says about anything that it affirms, that's true. It's truthful. Um, so, when the Bible talks about doctrine or morality or history uh, or even life sciences, all of the assertions of the Word of God are true. They're truthful, and we can trust them. Uh, Grudem writes this, The definition in simple terms just means that the Bible always tells the truth and that it always tells the truth concerning everything that it's about. Um, 
So, just a, a little bit, I've given you some quotes uh, from the history of the inerrancy in the Bible. Um, this is not exhaustive, I just kind of picked some people who seem to be key people throughout history. And, and pretty much what you see is that from the New Testament writers, at least through the Reformation, uh, the church fully accepted the cl- complete truthfulness of Scripture. Um, it was very rare for anyone to question the truthfulness of Scripture. And so I've given you some quotes. Athanasius says, It is the opinion of some that the Scriptures do not agree or that God who gave them is false, but there is no disagreement at all. Far from it. Neither can the Father who is true lie. Uh, Luther said, I'm not going to read all of these because you have them in your notes. Luther said, not only, has, uh, not only has Scripture never erred, it cannot err. Um, and John Calvin described the scripture as the internable, e- <laughs> eternal, inviolable truth of God. However, uh, what you see in church history is really, and, and again, I'm, I'm kind of glossing over history and making some general statements. Uh, at, after the Enlightenment, you begin to see people start to question this. You begin to see uh, this move away from uh, and, and really, I'm going to pull it to the modern-day debate, but go back and, and use history. So I'm using modern terms, but I'm, I'm pulling those back into history. So really, the debate today is inerrancy versus infallibility within the church, within evangelicalism. Um, I will say within evangelicalism. Um, so you have this debate, is the Bible inerrant or is it merely infallible? And that's really what it boils down to. And typically what you're going to find is, those who say that it's infallible, who insist on using the term infallible, do not hold to inerrancy. Um, they believe that the Bible can make mistakes. Um, they believe that, they, that what they'll say is something along the lines of, well, when you look at the purpose of the Bible, it's true regarding its purpose. But it can be true regarding salvation, regarding, and they'll use the terms uh, faith and and practice, that's right. So what we believe and then how we live, morality and how we, what we believe generally speaking. And so uh, you, it's true regarding things of faith and practice, but the Bible can make mistakes regarding history, for example, and still be true. And so they'll use the term infall- infallible, not inerrant. Um, whereas people who tend to hold to inerrancy would say that no, all of the words of Scripture are true and trustworthy. And so that's sort of the debate. You see this really starting to grow after the Enlightenment. There's a lot of key people involved in this. Um, but really, uh, after the Enlightenment, where you start to see uh, the age of reason, then that kind of leads into higher criticism of the Bible. Again, where man becomes the judge of the Bible, not the Bible being the judge of man. And so after the Enlightenment, you have, uh, by the way, you, well, you have this drift away from the Bible being inerrant to the Bible being merely infallible. Uh, the, you see, for example, in the 19th century, um, how many of y'all would think when you hear these three schools think seminary? Princeton, Yale, Harvard. Uh, do you tend to think of those schools as seminaries? No, typically, uh, but that's how they were founded. Um, and all of those schools drifted, had this drift away from, and you can see 
you can use those schools as an example of where you end up when you deny inerrancy. You end up drifting and drifting and drifting until you end up without anything or just a shell of Christianity. Uh, a lot of this really started to take place in the 19th century. Uh, just as an example, um, uh, a professor, Old Testament professor by the name of Crawford Toy was a a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, when he first went to Southern, he held to inerrancy, but by 1876, he had changed his position and ended up resigning from the school because his position no longer lined up with the school. Most notably, in the 20th century, you have Fuller Seminary. Uh, Fuller really is the key, uh, I think, for the modern debate. Fuller is sort of the, the ground zero of the debate. Uh, Fuller held to inerrancy. It was founded, I believe, in 1947-ish, something, somewhere around there. I can't remember exactly. Uh, but it held to inerrancy. By, by 1971, they, the board of the school voted unanimously to change their doctrinal statement. Uh, and basically, they took out the word inerrancy and held to an infallible view of the Bible. This led to a, a response uh, by evangelicalism in the 1978, the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy, uh, which was basically a response to this movement, uh, and it stood against the limited view of inerrancy, which is really what, what, what was at stake here. So is, is it a limited view of inerrancy, or is it full inerrancy? Is the Bible mostly true, and when you look at the, in terms of faith and practice, is it true, or is it true in everything that it says? <clears throat> Obviously, uh, we believe that it's true in everything that it says. So, uh, let's look at, again, the issue is absolute truthfulness. Uh, let's, ha I had some clarifications, um, it's important to realize that the focus of the issue in question is truthfulness. Um, absolute truthfulness uh, is consistent with these clarifications. And I'm going to just give you some examples as we move along. But clarification number one, the Bible can be inerrant and still speak an ordinary language of every day. Uh, and that takes different shapes. Number one, you have to realize that uh, the writers of the Bible um, are different people. You can look at some of the Bible, and it is very elegant, very um, written in very high style, and you can look at other parts of the Bible, if you know the original languages, and see that it's not. It's more common. It's, it's Peter, who is a fisherman, writing. Uh, and so God doesn't override the personalities of the people writing the Bible. So you have David, who's a shepherd. He's writing a lot of it. You have Peter, who's a fisherman. Matthew's a tax collector. So you have a, people from a lot of different backgrounds who are writing the different books of the Bible. And, and they, they use the ordinary language. In fact, the New Testament Greek was a very common form of Greek. Um, and so the Bible is typically written in a very common way. And, and we'll look at that some next week. Uh, another way to see the ordinary language is that uh, the Bible can speak of the sun rising and the sun setting uh, and, and still be true, or even rain falling. 
And that can still be true, even though from a scientific standpoint, that's not exactly accurate, right? Um, the Bible's not suggesting that, that we hold to a geocentric view of the universe um, just because it describes the sunrise or the sunset. Uh, it's speaking from a human perspective, uh, and, and we do the same thing. Uh, my son just the other day asked me, hey, Dad, when is the sunrise? And I pulled out my app, my weather app, and, and it said sunrise this time, sunset this time. Now, no one is going to suggest that the app is full of errors because it uses the word sunrise and sunset. Uh, we understand that that is making a statement from our perspective, and it's not making a scientific statement, right? We get that. Um, how, however, things like this come up, and, and people will challenge what the Bible's view is because it uses ordinary language. Here's the standard. Um, it should be true according to the degree of accuracy implied by the speaker and understood by the hearer. It should be true according to the degree of accuracy implied by the speaker and understood by the hearer. And I'll give you some examples of this. Um, if I ask my son how far he ran yesterday, and he says, I ran seven miles. Well, then I pull his phone up and I look at his running GPS and it, he actually ran 6.95 miles. Do I then assume that my son is untruthful and that he's lying? Well, no, because we have a, there's, a, there's an understanding there. I am not expecting when I ask that question the level of accuracy that I'm expect that I'm answer that his answer needs to be 6.95. Even that's not accurate, actually. I mean, it, we can move that decimal point further out. Um, here's another example. What's pi? 3.14. Great. Uh, did you know? It goes way out. <laughs> yeah, I, I looked it up online. I found one number that had 500 decimal places for pi. There's a level of accuracy that someone felt the need to go 500 decimal places. Um, for me, 3.14 is great. Uh, <laughs> I, we, I would not suggest that someone's being untruthful by saying that pi is 3.14. Uh, even though that's not exactly accurate. In fact, from what I understand, the 500 decimal place is not exactly accurate. It, it keeps going. So, uh, again, uh, accuracy is, is implied in a general statement. Some things, are, some things are written as poetry. We don't expect scientific language when we're reading poetry. At least I hope we don't. Um, but... On the flip side, we don't expect poetic language when we're reading science. When, so there's a degree of accuracy implied by the speaker and understood by the hearer. Um, not to beat this horse too long, but if you ask me how long it takes me to get to work, I would probably tell you 30 minutes, even though it really takes me about 34 um, and you would not assume that I'm being untruthful or that I'm a liar just because I said 30 minutes. Uh, really, it would be impossible, if you think about it, for us to use such precise language in everyday life. Think about it. I mean, if we tried to use scientific 
very precise language in everyday life. Uh, guys, you would probably be in a divorce situation really soon. <laughs> uh, it's, it's really impossible for us to think that way. And really, what it boils down to, and I'm going to make a statement, it might be a little bit shocking, but truth and precision are not the same thing. Truth and precision are not the same thing. Uh, they can and often do relate to each other. Uh, many times a statement must be precise to be true, thinking like if it's math class or science, uh, but other times the relationship is a little more casual. Um, truth and precision aren't necessarily the same thing. Was Jesus lying when he said that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds? No. Even though technically it's not. Um, he's not lying because he wasn't trying to be scientifically precise. Uh, he was communicating truth by using hyperbole that would have been understood by his audience. Um, again, we have to have some humility when we come to the Bible. Uh, we can't look at it as a critic. If you're looking at the Bible to find problems, you're going to find some. But I would sure hate for someone to look at me that way. And I'm sure you would probably hate that too. Uh, a, a similar consideration applies when it comes to numbers. Um, for example, a reporter can say that 8,000 men were killed in a particular battle. Now, we wouldn't consider this reporter untruthful if it actually turned out that there were 7,999 7, men killed or 8,001. We wouldn't consider that reporter untruthful, right? We understand that he's not using, and in, in fact, a lot of times when there's a big round number, we understand that's not necessarily precise, uh, and, and we understand that. And, and so a reporter can be uh, truthful and report the fact that 8,000 men died in battle when actually it was 7,999. Um, there are times, though, to be precise. Uh, if you go to the doctor and your doctor asks you about your pain, um, probably not the best time to use hyperbole. Uh, you probably want to be a little more precise than that. Um, inerrancy has to do with truthfulness, not with the degree of precision that is used in every instance in the Bible. Number two, the Bible can be inerrant and still include loose or free quotations. And really, I think this boils down to different, uh, and, and to some degree, it boils down to different cultural expectations. Um, all of us, hopefully, were, uh, went to a school or was taught by someone who uh, required us to use quotation marks when we were quoting people in our papers. Uh, and if you didn't use quotation marks, you usually got a really bad grade uh, because that's called plagiarism. And so we have a really high standard when it comes to quotations. So we have direct quotation where we're using quotation marks. We have indirect quotation where we don't use quotation marks. And it's okay, then you're, you're more uh, looking at the whole content of what's communicated, not the exact words that are used. And so uh, we have a very high um, expectation when it comes to quoting. Uh, that was not the case when the New Testament writers were writing. In fact, the Greek had no, from what I understand, the Greek at that time had no quotation marks. Is that true? 
Um, and so when they quoted things or people from the Old Testament, a lot of times it was a loose quotation. It was like it was similar to an indirect quotation that we would use today. Um, and I think we generally get that. Even sometimes concepts we understand. And, and for example, if, if, I, if, if I asked, does everyone have the outline? And, and so you're sitting there and your, your husband leans over and says, hey, what did he just say? And your wife says, he asked if you had the handout. Well, then the person next to them goes, whoa, hold on a second. That's not true. He didn't ask if you had the outline, a handout. He asked if you had the outline. We wouldn't assume that person's lying because we understand, we understand the concept. Even though the exact word is not used, the person's being truthful. Um, it might be different if I had an outline and a handout back there. Uh, but if it's just one handout and one person uses outline, one person uses handout, we get it. We understand that. Um, and, and sometimes that's the case. Um, uh, let's go to number three. Uh, basically, let me summarize the last point. One, one, one last thing. The, the writers of the New Testament uh, did not intend to communicate they were using exact word-for-word -word quotations when they quoted. Number three, it can be entirely truthful and that still be consistent with uh, or let me just read my point. It is consistent with inerrancy to have unusual or uncommon grammatical constructions in the Bible. And again, uh, this gets back to, uh, and there's some really interesting ones, uh, but this gets back to the, the elegance and the style, and authors sometimes used freedom when it comes to grammatical uh, constructions. For example, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Are there any English teachers in here? No? Uh, okay. Do what? Yes. Absolutely. Far be it for me to shout. <laughs> okay, so um, we're going to start reading through Ephesians. Um, and we're going to see something really quickly a grammatical problem if you're going to look at this with grammatical accuracy. Uh, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, so now we've stated the subject of the sentence, right? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Then you see that line, right? What does that typically mean? Paul's inserting a thought here. He's breaking his sentence. He's inserting a thought well, he never really gets to the verb of this. <laughs> uh, it's almost as though Paul is starting a sentence, and then he and Paul does this a lot in Ephesians. Actually, uh, we uh, a few uh, weeks ago when Randy was preaching, uh, he talked about he was in Ephesians, and he just said it's like Paul just keeps going with this sentence, and it's true. It's from an English per teacher's perspective, it's a grammatical nightmare. Uh, and, and so Paul, but he's communicating something, and it communicates truth to us because it is making statements. It is communicating something that's true. Uh, Paul, sometimes we get excited, and, and we don't use correct grammar when we're communicating, but we still communicate truth. 
Um, so, you can have unusual or uncommon grammatical constructions in the Bible, and it still be true. Uh, another, I mean, we, all of us, uh, with the exception maybe of the English teachers, uh, use improper grammar in everyday speech. I guarantee you, everybody in this room does. Uh, so, uh, but we wouldn't suggest because you don't use proper grammar that you're being untrustworthy or untruthful or that you're lying. Uh, spelling is another area where scripture is not as precise as some people might want it to be. Um, and I mean, that just makes sense. I mean, we live in an age where dictionaries are abound and we have uh, uh, we ha even have on our computers a spell check that automatically clues us into when we make a mistake. Uh, they didn't have that when they wrote the New Testament. And you have to factor into consideration that different regions often would use a different spelling of a word. And we even see that today, right? Anybody from England here? No? How do they spell color? It's different. <laughs> and that's not the only example. I mean, there's just different ways... Different regions have different spellings, and so when we come to the Bible, sometimes there is, and you won't see this in English, we're talking about the original manuscripts, uh, so most of us won't ever see it anyway, but there are different, sometimes an unusual spelling, but that doesn't mean that it's not truthful. Again, the issue is truthfulness in speech, um, and just because someone misspells a word doesn't mean they're lying or they're being untruthful. So... The problem with inerrancy, I'm sorry, the problem with denying inerrancy, <clears throat> uh, the, <laughs> yeah, so I'm not, I'm not inerrant, by the way, uh, in case you hadn't figured that out. Uh, the objection, and this is really gets back to the whole idea where Fuller was basically changing their doctrinal statement. The Bible is authoritative. This is what they would claim for faith and practice. And again, they don't like the word inerrant. They prefer the word infallible, or we would say it's a limited view of inerrancy. Um, and, and again, it's, it's the Bible's true. If you look at the purpose of Scripture, is only to teach us, according to this view, it's only to teach us about faith and practice. And so when the Bible speaks about faith and practice, we can trust it, according to this view. Um, however, it has some historical mistakes. It has other kinds of mistakes, some scientific maybe mistakes. I mean, there's a lot of different things. Uh, it, it has maybe mistakes in who wrote a particular book. Um, but that's okay. Um, it, according to the purpose, the Bible is infallible. And again, I'm, I'm summarizing this position. So, it can make false statements about history or science and still be infallible. Uh, it doesn't matter if, if Adam wasn't a real man or if Jonah really didn't, didn't get swallowed by a great fish. Uh, those things don't really matter. Uh, what matters is the, when it comes to faith and practice, it is infallible. Um, the response to this is that's not the way the New Testament writers saw the Old Testament. Um, and if, well, we'll come to the and if later. Uh, Jesus believed that the Old Testament was true and factual. Um, did I give you these in your notes? Okay, good. Uh, because I wasn't going to go through all of these. 
but it is interesting when you look at, and I've given you the scripture references, and you can go back at some point and look these up, uh, but Jesus did believe in Adam and Eve as the first historical people. Uh, he believed in Noah and the flood as a literal historical event. I'm just going through and picking some of these. Uh, he believed that God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Uh, he believed in the miracle of providing manna to Israel in the wilderness. He even believed that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. Um, Jesus believed all of those things were historically accurate in the Old Testament. Um, but it wasn't just Jesus, it was the other writers of the New, Te Old Te of the New Testament as well. For example, uh, 1 Peter 3.20, Peter identifies Noah and the flood as being historically accurate. 2 Peter 2.16, do y'all have these? Did I give you these? Okay, good. Yeah, this one I found interesting, Balaam's donkey speaking. Uh, Peter believed that was a historical event. Um, and then, of course, uh, we have Paul, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. It's inspired. It's God spoke these words and all of scripture, not just the parts of scripture that pertain to faith and practice, but all of scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Um, the real problem I think you see, and I think you, this goes back to uh, Princeton, Harvard, and Yale, is when you deny inerrancy, um, Typically what follows is a systematic uh, redefining of what is true, redefining of what we can trust, and when you see that redefinition or that drift away from inerrancy is always going to go down this slope to denying basic Christian truths. Um, and so one of the reasons we've spent three weeks on this is because this is the foundation. The authority of God's word is the foundation. And if we deny this, uh, we end up going down a road that inevitably leads to a denial of basic Christian truths. Um, and, and, and Fuller is no exception. Uh, and, and it will continue, in my opinion, unless it changes to go down that road. Um, so, no inerrancy, no assurance. Uh, if the Bible's not true in all that it says, then how do we know what parts of it are true? If we want to start dissecting the Bible and saying, okay, well, this part's true, this part doesn't have to be true, um, then how do we know what parts we can trust and what parts are, are untrustworthy? Um, and then really the problem then is, is who's judging? Who's to say? Um, if this is the highest authority, uh, and, and by the way, if I could do an aside here and go back to uh, last week, um, I didn't touch on this uh, just because I didn't feel like I needed to, but um, some people will say when you say the Bible is the highest authority and it is the judge by which all other truth is to be judged, which is the claim that we made, uh, some people will say, well, isn't that circular reasoning? Um, yes, 
it is circular reasoning. Uh, and that makes sense if you think about it. Any claim to ultimate authority cannot claim anything higher than itself as its authority. Uh, and we it, sort of instinctively get this if you're a parent. Um, how many of you have ever told your kids, because I said so? Um, I mean, when you're the highest authority in that world, uh, you don't have to appeal to anything else. There's nothing else. And if you do appeal to something else, then that becomes the authority. And so any claim, any claim to ultimate authority is going to be a circular argument. So, um, yeah, you can't avoid it. Even those who would try to deny it and say, well, based on man's wisdom, well, who's to say man's wisdom is the ultimate authority? Um, so you, you get into that ultimate, the, the circular reasoning, either way you go. Okay, uh, so again, back to the point here. If, if, we, if the Bible can be untruthful in one area, why not the others? Um, and again, we get back to man judging God's word and not coming with humility as though we can judge God. And we can't do that. God judges us. And again, I said last week, if there's a problem that we have with the Bible, the problem's not in the Bible. The problem is with us. Uh, either we in our fallen nature are resisting or suppressing truth, right? Romans 1, we suppress truth. Uh, that's who mankind is. Uh, or we're ignorant in some way of something. And humility would say, okay, yeah, there may be an issue here uh, in this particular verse, but there is, there is a good answer, and one day we'll know what that answer is. Um, so, again, uh, if there's no inerrancy, there's no assurance of any of Scripture. Uh, if, again, if this is God's Word, and God's Word can be wrong in one area, why can't it be wrong in another? By the way, uh, well... Let me go to the second point. There's no assurance of salvation. If there's no assurance, if there's no inerrancy, there's no assurance of salvation. And that follows from the last point. Uh, not to say that uh, you can't believe in the, you can't hold to the infallible view of the word. I'm not suggesting that you cannot genuinely be a Christian. That's not my point. But you begin to lose the real purpose of scripture if you fall into that way of thinking. Uh, scripture never divorces faith from history. Never. In fact, we call it the history of salvation, the whole Bible. Um, and so, if, if there's no inerrancy, you can't have assurance of the trustworthiness of God's word. You can't have assurance of salvation, because if God can be wrong in one area, why couldn't he be wrong in another? Uh, consider the impact that... Um, Denying inerrancy has on preaching, for example. What does that do to preaching? Well, the first thing the pastor has to do when he comes to the Word of God, if he's going to preach, uh, is decide which part of it's true, right? Um, so you can't preach the whole counsel of God's Word. You can't preach the whole Bible. Um, you have to figure out what parts of it are actually trustworthy or what parts of it are true. Um, and so the preacher's job from the get-go 
uh, is to discern which texts are worthy of our trust. Um, and so, again, man becomes the judge of God's word, and that, and that really flows into, I'm just using preaching as an example, but it really flows into all areas of life. Um, you think about just in your, uh, when you're talking with somebody and, and you're giving advice or counsel on an issue, um, as a believer, you have to decide, okay, well, what text can I use um, if, if you hold to a limited inerrant view? Um, Matthew Barrett points out that once you reject inerrancy, the reader, not the author, now determines what is good and necessary for the Christian faith. So once you reject inerrancy, now the reader becomes the one who decides what's good and what's trustworthy. Um, and that is not the view that the Bible has. Um, let me close by reading you a couple of verses from Psalm 19. This says, verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. We have God's word in its truthful, pure form. Um, and this is what we need to come to. It is the way we need to come to it in humility. Um, and, and, and looking at the word of God as all of these things. It's perfect. It's sure. It's right. It's pure. It's clean. And it's true. Um, God's word is what we need, um, and we need to learn to sit, and I'm not suggesting that we don't do this, uh, but we need to be comfortable sitting under the word of God, not putting ourselves over the word of God. Um, let me pray. Father, we thank you, um, and Lord, we uh, do ask that you would help us when we come to your word to come in humility, um, Lord, to see how true, how pure, how right your words are. And Lord, I pray that we would be teachable. Uh, Lord, I pray that um, you would continue to help us as we engage your word to renew our minds. Lord, help us to think rightly about the world around us, about the people around us, Help us to think your thoughts about um, our purpose here on this earth, Lord, and, and, and who you are. Father, we need your word. We need your revelation, and then we just pray that you would help us as we read it, study it, hear it preached, that we would be moldable clay in your hands. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.